American stories and those are two sounds that we love here the sound of great gospel music and if you remember where and when this song was used best in a movie well it's Secretariat and Secretariat came to us as a shining example of aristocracy big handsome full of charge he walked with style stood tall and displayed the best manners on paper he wasn't perfect losing five of his 21 races as if to say I'm only human. But to the eye, he was perfection itself, and when he performed, he took our breath away. Yet some may ask, how could he have been voted 35th among the 20th century's 50 greatest athletes? Furthermore, how could a horse place a close second behind Wilt Chamberlain's unimaginable 100-point game on ESPN's Who's Number One list of greatest sports performances by an individual athlete? And the answer? Because he was secretariat, more than just a horse. And on this day in history in 1973, secretariat won the Kentucky Derby. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Let's take a listen to secretariat's story. He had a kind of a princely quality about him. Physically, mentally, he had the temperament, he had the physique, he had the heart. He had brilliant speed, great stamina. The girths which are made by saddlers wouldn't fit him. They had special ones made to go under that big belly. It is said by experts that he was the perfect horse in measurement. You could look at Secretary and you knew that he was something special. In addition to being an extraordinarily uh, good runner, uh, there was a very imperious uh, look to him. It had a big flashing copper coat on him, and when the sun's rays hit him, it was a beautiful thing to see. It was the way God intended to, uh, to make a horse. You can't anticipate greatness. You can't really define it, I suppose. It's something that, that, that God, every once in a while, sticks in somebody. And, uh, and because it comes from God, um, the gift can't be ignored. And it can't be defeated. And the great athletes use it, even if they're not human. So true. And despite the universal praise ultimately lavished on this horse in a million, his career began without fanfare on July 4, 1972, as his trainer... Lucien Loren looked on from the owner's box. He made his debut as a two-year-old at Aqueduct. And unfortunately, he had some trouble leaving the starting gate and got banged around. The rider did a terrible job. Had him been in trouble the whole way. I mean, he was, you know, never had a chance to run, and everybody saw it. On the outside, it's Quebec 6th, followed by Fleet and Royal 7th. Version is 8th. Jacques Coup on the inside, 9th. Secretariat is 10th. Lucian got up and he kicked the chair across the box and he said, damn, that horse should never be beaten. 
And that's when I knew that Lucian thought we had a really good horse. Secretariat's chief problem in his life was he was handled by people. Had he been handled by someone other than flawed human beings, he would have been undefeated. After finishing fourth in his all-too-human debut, Secretariat won his next two races, the second under a new jockey, Ron Turcott. But it wasn't until the Sanford Stakes in Saratoga Springs, New York, when the horse that would capture America's heart gave us just a glimpse into the future. Here's Secretariat's jockey. I was sitting behind two horses. I started to make my move because it was an opening. And when them two horses come back together, they just ricocheted off him. And it's just like nothing happened. He went on and won by himself. That was the beginning where he really impressed me. Ronnie Turcott wins it aboard Secretariat under the wire, the winner by three lengths. He separated himself uh, from the rest of the crop pretty effectively, especially his races at Saratoga that summer. By the time that he approached his third start, then it was happening. I mean, then there was a lot being said in this red horse that Lucian Lauren has, and uh, could be something special. You know, it could be. In the middle of the racetrack, Secretariat with a rush moving to the leaders. They come down to the top of the stretch. Sunny South has the lead by a neck. Here comes Secretariat on the outside, rushing to contention. When Secretariat made his move in the hopeful, it was unlike any move that I'd ever seen a two-year-old make. It was uh, the kind of a move that you just t- it takes your breath away, that you could hear the collective gasp from the entire Saratoga Grandstand. It was just like, wow, did you see that? They straighten away in the stretch and Secretariat takes the lead by Julie. He circled the entire field in 22 and 1 for a quarter, going around the turn about eight wide. And you don't see any horse, let alone two-year-old, do that. Physically, he was mature beyond his years. He was clearly the dominant two-year-old in America. There was a sustained interest in Secretariat, and he was anticipated to uh, as a a real triple crown potential horse uh, right along. For a two-year-old to become horse of the year, he can't just be a very good two-year-old. He has to break the mold. He has to do something really sensational and different. Secretariat looks like a two-year-old who could turn into a super horse. Beyond his explosive acceleration and lofty bearing, Secretariat exuded a human dimension that quickly gained him national fame. Secretariat just had a regal way of standing before he was going out to work out, and uh, he looked like he was in charge. He was beautifully balanced and had this rich red color and the interesting blaze, but the best thing about him was his eye. It was incredible. All of a sudden, he'd be looking at the stands, he'd walk down, slow down, finally come to a little halt. Like he was saying hello to that pretty girl in the stands. Every time he heard a camera, he turned. He'd stop and turn. I saw a secretary once watch an airplane fly overhead. I'd never seen that before. He had that star quality about him. Sort of like the movie stars arriving on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. He would look over, give you the perfunctory, it's me, good to see you, gotta go. Instead of a bit player uh, on the New York stage, he would have probably been an English stage actor doing Shakespeare. If he could have talked, He'd have been a son of a because he was arrogant. He was the heavyweight champion of the world, and he knew it. And when we come back, more on Secretariat's life. We do it all here on Our American Stories, and you can't wait to hear the rest of this great story. More after these messages.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of Secretariat, who won the Kentucky Derby on this day in history in 1973. And again, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. And rarely do you hear my opinions about anything, but there's nothing to me like being at the far turn of a major sport sporting event called horse racing. And by the way, this has never changed. You know, you watch an NBA game and commercials ruin the momentum and the flow. You watch all kinds of other sports. There are no commercials in the middle of a two-minute race. You see it from beginning to end. No one and nothing can change it. If you ever get a chance, go to the Kentucky Derby, go to Santa Anita and see a great race there, and bring a lady, and just sit at that far turn and watch these beasts roar a race around that turn with jockeys sitting on a on a horse going 35 to 40 miles an hour, and they're practically riding them bareback. It is something to see. And let's pick up the story. That marquee quality sparked investor interest throughout the racing world. In early 1973, shares for Secretariat were sold for a record total of $6 million. Then, after winning his first two starts of the year, the unexpected happened in his Kentucky Derby tune-up at Aqueduct Racetrack, in Queens, New York. Here's Jim Gaffney, Secretariat's exercise rider. The day before the Wood Memorial, I worked him a, an eighth of a, a three-eighths of a mile, and I had to kick him to, to make him work, and I never had to do that. And I told the foreman, there's something the matter with this horse. I said, you better have him checked out. And this word never got back to Lucian Lawn. Ronnie said the horse was acting funny in the gate, and every time he pulled on the rein, he jerked his head back that he had never done that, and he couldn't understand it. 70 yards from the finish, it's Angolite in front, Sham on the outside. And here's the finish, Angolite holding on, winning it by a neck. It's a big upset. Secretariat finishing third in a photo. And as you can imagine, the investors weren't thrilled. I mean, they had just popped down $6 million, and in this tune-up to the Derby, just a terrible run, and they thought, what have we done? Well, with the Derby just two weeks away, serious questions arose about the jockey's ability to guide Secretariat to victory in the first leg of the Triple Crown. Secretariat's trainer, Lucian Lauren, didn't know what to think, but others were losing confidence in the horse. Secretariat came to Kentucky with a huge number of detractors. All of a sudden, Lucian Lauren brings him into Louisville, and there's just all this uh, uh, controversy about uh, rumors that he might have hurt himself uh, in the Wood Memorial. And, and Jimmy the Greek at that time was going around telling people the week of the Derby that the horse was lame. This horse was such a great two-year-old. He was horse of the year as a two-year-old. And now he's coming in here with a chance to be maybe the greatest thing since Man of War. But you can't block out all these rumors, and, and you wonder, what's going to happen here today? Well, with all those negative rumors, Secretariat was still a 3-2 to two favorite to win the biggest race of his young life. And by the way, the biggest race in racing. A record 134,000 hummed with expectation. This is Churchill Downs, Louisville, Kentucky, on this first Saturday in May, 1973. I'm Jack Whitaker, and this is the 99th running of the Kentucky Derby. Moments from a start. Secretariat is in the gate. Mike Gallant is moving in. Secretariat throws his head a bit. They're at the post. And they're off for the lead. On the inside, that's Angolite for the lead. He broke dead last. And he was dead last after a quarter of a mile. Then four goes. 
On the outside, Navajo, followed by Secretariat. Into the spring of his three-year-old year, Secretariat really started making up his own mind. He seemed to understand racing and seemed to want to dictate his own strategy. Secretariat is fourth and moving up on the outside and is now third and moving at the leaders as they come for the head of the stretch. They're at the head of the stretch and Cham is the leader. He leads it by a length. Secretariat is in the center of the racetrack and driving. And then he made this tremendous move and we knew that we had seen something historic and maybe perhaps we were going to have a great triple crown winner. Now they're in the stretch, it's sec Secretariat. Secretariat on the outside to take the lead. Jam holding in second. It's Secretariat moving away, he has it by two and a half. And I reached back and hit him a couple of times. Then he just took off, I just put my stick down and he, he went by two and a half very easily. Jam, then on the outside, our native. At the wire, it's going to be Secretariat. He wins it by two lengths. Secretariat just broke the old Kentucky Derby record. People were looking at the tote board. He ran the last quarter mile in 23 seconds, which is unprecedented in the Derby. Secretariat did something that no horse ever did. He went each of the five quarters faster. It justified logic. Another quarter mile he might have taken to the air and flown, which is obviously what was in his blood. As the first horse to run the mile in the quarter Derby in under two minutes, Secretariat turned what had been uneasiness in Louisville into confidence in Baltimore. He went off as a 3-10 to 10 favorite in the Preakness Stakes at Pimlico Racecourse where I lived just six miles away and spent my favorite Saturdays of my life for eight years. This is the tightly turned second leg of the Triple Crown. Well, it's almost ready. The horse is just about to move into that starting gate. The weather is perfect and we're just waiting for a fine horse race. Secretariat was still running with an explosive style and centrifugal force would carry him wide on the turns and Pimlico is considered to have tighter turns. That was the one I was worried about. And they're off. Oh, the early lead. That's Deadly Dream on the outside at Coley Taj. Then it's also Torsion on the outside. In the Preakness, he broke last again. Now he's going to the turn. You think it's going to be the same thing as the Derby. Then our native and Secretariat is last again as they move into the first turn. Turcotte took a hold of him made it almost an imperceptible gesture with his hands, like a man adjusting his cuff. Took the horse to the outside and he went boom. He went from last to first in about 180 yards. Cham under an easy hold right now, but here comes Secretariat. He's moving fast and he's going to the outside. He's going for the lead and it's right now he's looking for it. He just accelerated and just circled the field and I said, good Lord, what is Turcotte thinking about? I mean, this horse is cooked because you just didn't see a horse ever make a move like that, especially in the first turn. It was far too early for him to have been moved strategically. Ronnie wouldn't have asked him to run that soon in the race. It had to be what the horse wanted to do. Secretariat holding it by a length and a half. Here comes Sham second on the outside now. Now it's Secretariat the leader by a length and a half with Sham moving into second. Once I get to the lead there and I just drop him on the rail and just turn his head loose and he went back to Gal from his old self. You know, he just loping along. You know, I kept thinking Belmont. Secretariat by two lengths. Sham driving second. There's a strong left-handed whip again by Tinkai. He goes to it time and time again. But Ronnie Turcotte has his whip put away. And Secretariat has him put away. He's beginning to draw away. It is Secretariat. He's coming to the wire. He wins it by two and a half, almost three. He went into 
to another level of, of consciousness in the uh, public eye. There were actually kids standing on the rail as he came by. This horse had now captured the public, not just a racing crowd. Secretariat did it again today. He won the Preakness at Pimlico, and he's now two-thirds of the way toward the Triple Crown. Expectations were very high for any horse, not just Secretariat, to win the Triple Crown. After 25 years since Citation had won it in 1948, there had been a lot of very good horses that had tried to win and failed. Winning the Triple Crown seemed almost impossible. It uh, was tantamount to the 400 hitter in baseball or the DiMaggio 56-game hitting streak. This was something that uh, most Americans had finally concluded will never happen again. No one will ever win the Triple Crown again. And by the way, they thought that because of specialized breeding. In each of these races, if you're not a race fan, the Kentucky Derby is what you'd call the mid-length race. The, the Pimlico is the sprint. And then the Belmont, it's a mile and a half, which is forever for horses. And so horses, as they became more specialized in the breeding, well, it just became to seem that it was impossible to have one horse do all of these things. And that's why it had been so long. Many people, people speculate that uh, there had been a Triple Crown winner, and why it's still so hard today. And we had American Pharaoh do it just recently. And by the way, you want to hear a terrific story. Me, my dad, and American Pharaoh, New York Times column written by a guy named Gary Ginsburg, who is an executive vice president at Time Warner. And he recalled all those days at the track where he and his dad would go down to Aqueduct or Belmont. He was a New Yorker. And they'd always wanted to see a Triple Crown winner. And, well... His father saw one with Secretariat, but didn't really live long enough or good enough quality of life to witness American Pharaoh. Alzheimer's had sunk in, and, well, the dad got to watch the race with the son, but the dad had no idea what was going on. And so it was a really a lament of times past and a common passion between a father and a son, whether it's fishing, horse racing, whatever it might be. I take my little girl to horse racing. Uh, as often as I can into great horse races. And when we come back, the greatest of all the horses, Secretariat, after these messages. Not since Man of War in 1920 had a horse so captivated the nation. Now, the 1-10 to 10 favorite had a chance to succeed where seven horses failed since 1948 to win the Belmont Stakes after taking the first two legs of the Triple Crown. June 9, 1973, the Day of Reckoning, broke bright and clear. By post time, millions of Secretariat fans put their money where their hearts were, some for the first time in their lives. Of the 70,000 that overflowed the stands, a few had been at the track since sunup. I was there at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was there all night. I fell asleep against a tree by his barn. The fittest I have ever seen a horse. His eyes were big as saucers. His nostrils were flared. He was nickering. His ears were playing. 
his muscles were rippling, and he's walking around on his hind legs. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, what are we going to see today? Before the race, you could see not only what Secretariat meant to really veteran, hard-boiled, you know, step over a guy with a heart attack so don't get shut out at the window betters, okay? But also with people who were at that track who were not gamblers, who brought their kids because it was Secretariat. This was the people's horse. Everybody wanted to see him not only win, but do it in a way that would really be authoritative. I'm looking at him and I think, I've never seen him walk like this before. He looks like the execution man. He's going to the gallows. <laughs> He's about to dispatch somebody. And they're off. Looks like the early lead goes to Mike Gallant. Yes, Mike Gallant going for the lead with Price and Press on the outside. Secretary in a way very well has good position on the rail. And in fact, is now going up with the leader. Sham had been such a tough competitor for him in the first two races. Uh, he wondered, would this finally be Sham's day? My instructions were uh, to, to, to be very close to Secretariat from the way it goes. And now it's Sham. Sham and Secretariat are right together into the first turn. Mike Allen has third behind them. Then it's twice the Prince, and the trailer is private smiles as they go by the turn. He just felt like running. That was the day he felt terrific. I said, just leave him alone. I said, just take a long hold and let him run his own race. Ron Turcott, he let him run. Come on, let's see what he's got. You've done the Derby, you've done the Preakness, come on. Let's see how he goes all out. How good can this guy go? They continue down the backstretch, and that secretary is not taking the lead. I looked at the teletimer and saw that the horse had gone three quarters of a mile in 109 and two, which is the fastest three quarters of a mile ever run in the Belmont Stakes. And he's leaving Sham at this point. He is running and running and running. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, he's lost the horse. Three and a half. He's moving into the turn. Secretary and holding on to a large lead. Jam is second and then it's a long way back to Mike Allen and twice a print. And I'm thinking, he has gone insane. And I'm saying, I'm cursing him under my breath. You moron. What are you doing? You know? You're going to kill the horse. You're going to lose the Triple Crown. Don't you know how fast you're going? Nobody knew that that was going to happen. Uh, not the rider, not the trainer, not the owner. Or I think probably not the horse. Secretary is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretary by 12. Secretary by 14 lengths on the turn. And he still has a quarter of a mile to go. And I'm thinking to myself, he's going to totally collapse in the stretch. He can't keep this up. And I'm asking other guys are on the track, what are you thinking? And everybody to a man is thinking, he's going too damn fast. Secretary is in a position that he's impossible to catch. He's into the stretch. Secretary leads his field by 18 lengths. Lucian said to me, oh my God, Ronnie, just don't fall off. Don't fall off. Finally, after I turned for home, my curiosity got the best of me. I had to turn around. When I look at it, I scare myself. They're in the stretch. Secretariat has opened the 22 length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. 25 lengths in front. And here's the fallout.
I believed in Pegasus that day because I saw him. I mean, I never saw anything like that in my life. 31 lengths. I mean, it's a, think of what that, I mean, that's unbelievable. It's like, it's like they were racing on two different racetracks. It was like the Lord was holding the reins. Secretariat was one of his creatures and he maybe whispered to him a, a go. And that horse really went. It was really an almost supernatural uh, experience. It really was. I leaped up out of my chair at Belmont Park shouting, we'll never see this again. And I get to the elevator to go down to the winner's circle and I'm standing next to Pete Axtell. And he said, I used to think that the Ali Fraser fight in Madison Square Garden was the greatest thing I've ever seen. This was even greater. Everybody was speechless. And then when it set in, people were crying. I actually saw people crying at this event. I mean, it was such an overwhelming thing. There were these co-eds lining the rail. And this sounds hard to believe, but I swear half of them were weeping as he went by. Jack Nicholas once called me over and said, you were at the Belmont, you saw that race. And I said, yes. And he said, I was all alone in my living room, watching. And as he came down the stretch, pulling away, I applauded and I cried. And Haywood said to him, in a, in a brilliant moment of epiphany and insight, he said, Jack, don't you understand? He said, all of your life, in your game, you've been striving for perfection. And he said, at the end of the Belmont, you saw it. When you beat a track record, you normally beat it by a fifth of a second. He knocked two seconds, maybe two and a fifth, off of the track record and won by 31 lengths. It was... There, there's no horse in the history of horse racing that could have ever beaten Secretariat on that day. You're not supposed to win majors by a dozen strokes, you're not supposed to score 100 points, and you're not supposed to win the Belmont by 31 lengths. The desperate way in which the losers were so beaten and so battered by this horse, it was the Confederate Army staggering home after Appomattox. I mean, these are all flowery, ridiculous things, and you could say, hey, it's nothing but a horse race. I'm sorry. This horse was an athlete. But this is more than a story about a great American horse. This is the story of a great American team, the team's leader, Penny Chennery. In 1971, with her father a victim of Alzheimer's, the family's horse farm began losing money. Chennery's siblings originally planned to sell the operation when their father could no longer run it. Chennery, however, wanted to try to fulfill her father's dream to win the Kentucky Derby. The housewife and mother of four fired longtime trainer Casey Hayes and hired Roger Lauren to train and manage the Meadow Stable horses. Lauren helped to cut costs and return the operation to profitability before leaving. In May of 1971, Chennery hired his father, Lucian Lauren, and in 1972, they guided the Meadow Farms colt Reva Ridge to victory in the Kentucky Derby and Belmont Stakes. Again, it was a great movie script to have Reva Ridge. Indeed, her farm manager, an old Mr. Gentry, said to me after 1972, oh, I'm sorry, Haywood, for Miss Tweedy. Next year, she knocked me. She had all that excitement with Reva, and next year, she got nothing. And, of course, nothing was Secretariat. Were it not for Penny Chenery, I think Secretariat would have been as famous and as popular a racehorse, but I don't think we would have remembered him in quite as completely a satisfying way. 
Penny was the perfect owner for Secretariat. Uh, she was this uh, uh, attractive, uh, intelligent, uh, gracious woman. And I think because of her, probably, a lot of the women in America really became interested in Secretariat, maybe more than they would have been had there been uh, a man owner. I hope I've been a role model for women, but it just was never in italics in my uh, game plan. I just happened to be a woman. And that was Penny you were listening to. And when we come back, a few more thoughts on Secretariat, and then we will play you that me, my dad, and American Pharaoh segment we talked about earlier, uh, the last Triple Crown winner, of course, American Pharaoh. And we're talking right now about the greatest Triple Crown winner of all time, Secretariat. This is our American Stories, Secretariat story, continues. In November of 1973, just 16 months since his inauspicious debut, the big chestnut retired and was set to stud at Claiborne Farm in Paris, Kentucky. Shortly after, the Today Show arrived to do a hit on Secretariat. Here's NBC's Tom Hanman and Dick Enberg. And uh, we set up right uh, by the Secretariat paddock. And it was one of the great performances of all time because it was like he knew he was on national TV. He sat there and he posed with his head and his ears and it was like the star knew that the red light was on, it's time to perform. I asked Seth Hancock, now how could you tell? I mean, they all look so magnificent. How, how could you tell that Secretariat was any better than anyone else? He says, you know, it's their eyes. You know, the great athletes have great throwbreds. It's their eyes. And as he said eyes, Secretariat snapped his head and stared at me like that to say, and you better believe it. Just look me right in the eyes. And, and he told me then, he said, even out in the field, when they feed the horses, they wait till Secretariat eats first. In the fall of 1989, Secretariat became afflicted with laminitis, a painful and debilitating hoof condition. When his condition failed to improve after a month of treatment, he was euthanized on October 4 at the age of 19. We decided we'd bury him at 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning. You look at everybody's faces and tears rolling down the cheeks. And, you know, but that's that. You know, you bury him and uh, you be thankful for what you had and go on back to your job and see if you can come close to getting your hands on another one like him, which will never happen and you know it, but that's what you're in it for. Secretariat was given the rare honor of being buried whole. Usually only the head, heart, and hooves of a winning racehorse are buried. The autopsy revealed what every poet knew, that his heart was huge. At 22 pounds, his heart was two and a half times larger than those who ran so far behind him. When I did the autopsy on Secretariat, we were quite astonished. He was certainly unusual. He was almost a, a freak in nature, but a freak in terms of being so abnormally perfect. He had a larger motor, and he was able to crack up oxygen and synthesize it faster and more efficiently than any other horse I've ever seen. He just had a superior power pack, and he was showing it to the world. I wonder what he thought. He must have had a sense of accomplishment. 
Every now and then some athlete is touched for a moment with a kind of higher level of greatness which they may never achieve again, but at that moment they were more than life allows. It was the same thing that Babe Ruth did for baseball. There's someone that everyone can relate to, think about, be amazed about. And that's what he did for racing. And he really brought American people around, well, around horse racing and actually just brought them together. And that brings us to our American Pharaoh story that I talked to you about before. Gary Ginsburg, the executive vice president of corporate marketing and communications at Time Warner, tells the heartwarming story of he and his father and how they spend summers at the racetrack. And again, American Pharaoh, another Triple Crown winner. Well, here's Gary lamenting about the life 40 years later of he and his dad. And they're into the stretch. And American Pharaoh makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong. Frosted is second with one-eighth of a mile to go. American Pharaoh's got a two-lane lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole. And here it is. The 37-year wait is over. American Pharaoh is finally the one. American Pharaoh has won the Triple Crown. He did it. American Pharaoh has ended the 37-year drought to a deafening roar from the fans here at Belmont Park. When American Pharaoh crossed the finish line in Belmont Stakes on June 6, 2015, becoming the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years, I cried. After talking with friends who also watched the race, most of us men in our 50s and 60s, I discovered I was not alone. Many of us were overcome by emotion and, as it turns out, mostly for the same reason. We were thinking about our dads. For a generation of American men born during the Great Depression, racing was much more than a five-week diversion from the first Saturday in May to the first Saturday in June. It was an obsession. And the obsession was shared with us, their children, so that in many cases, horse racing came to define the relationship we had with our fathers and the little free time they had to share with us. For me and for so many of my friends Saturday, the one person with whom we all wanted to share this historic moment was no longer by our side. The joy and thrill of the race was tempered by a profound sadness. My dad, Erwin Ginsberg, has had four great passions in life. The law, tennis, his family, and thoroughbred racing, though not necessarily in that order. He developed his fascination with horses as a kid in Buffalo, during what was arguably the sport's hated. Following the exploits of horses like War Admiral and Citation, between the ages of 7 and 18, he had already witnessed an astonishing five Triple Crown winners, and he was hooked. He wanted to make sure I got hooked, too. It's a beautiful morning. Sunday, the one day of the week he didn't go into his law office, was race day. We'd pile into our Chrysler New Yorker and head from our home in Buffalo to the Fort Erie racetrack in Ontario. 
once there, Dad would walk me through the intricacies of the racing form. Speed ratings, past performances, class levels, before placing a series of exotic bets on the fillies and mares traveling the hard-bitten southern Ontario race circuit. When he lost, which was more times than not, he'd angrily crumple the betting slips, ending up with a small mountain under his seat by the end of the day. That horse, named Secretariat, is the reason why one of the greatest crowds in horse racing history has turned out here at Belmont Park in New York to see a... But we were in front of our Zenith TV for the best race of all, the the 1973 Belmont Stakes. Secretariat had already run the fastest Kentucky Derby and Preakness in history and came to the race of champions as the prohibitive favorite. For my dad, it represented the best chance to end a 25-year Triple Crown drought. My 11-year-old self sensed the moment's historic significance, so I brought my tape recording. And you will see Secretariat being led. He is number is two, but he goes into the number one post. Listening to that cassette today, I can hear the tension in my father's voice as the horses make their way to the starting gate. He yells at me to move away from the screen, though the race is still a minute from post. We're ready to go for this tremendous Belmont stick. Then the race starts. And it quickly becomes a two-horse contest, with Secretariat pulling away after the half-mile pole. We're quiet at first. But the silence breaks when I shout, he's going to win. My father shushes me, and we both go quiet again until Secretariat rounds the final turn. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 lengths on the turn. Sam is dropping back. My father starts repeating, oh my God, oh my God. But Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. While I'm unable to control my prepubescent excitement, I begin screaming again at the screen. Secretariat has opened the 22-length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. In the years that followed, we watched Seattle Slough and Affirm win their Triple Crowns and continued our Sunday traditions at the track. Eventually, with me adding to the mountain under our seats, thanks to my paper route earnings. Then I left Buffalo for college, law school, and life in New York, and another Triple Crown drought set in. A decade ago, my father found out he had Alzheimer's. His mom, dad, and brother had all had the disease. He had feared it his entire adult life, and now he was to suffer the same fate. He was forced into a retirement he never wanted, but his love of horses endured. Three summers running, I took him to the Saratoga race course until the betting became too complicated for him. But the Belmont still held a special place. Even as his brilliant mind declined, twice he managed to travel by himself from Buffalo to New York with hopes of witnessing one more triple crown alongside his son and twice we were denied. Standing side by side, watching first Smarty Jones and then Big Brown lose in heartbreaking fashion were among the happiest moments of my dad's retirement and of my adult life. Victor, you just won the Belmont Stakes and with it, ended the 37-year drought and got your first Triple Crown finally. Just after the Belmont this year, my face still flushed from crying, I called my mom in Buffalo to see if dad had watched. No, they hadn't watched the race. 
He wouldn't know a horse from a rabbit, she said. Instead, they were sitting at the table, having dinner. My father oblivious that his 37-year wait for another Triple Crown winner was over. Well, you might not be able to feel how fast he's going, but I can feel how happy you are. Let's go to Kenny Rice. I started to cry all over again. And thank you for that. Me, my dad, an American pharaoh, and secretary at horse racing for the hour, storytelling like only we do here on Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg and the team for all the work they do. Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from business to history to sports to the arts, and your stories too. Orson Welles not only changed the way film was made in Hollywood, he paved the way for so many others. He wasn't just a legendary director, but a remarkable actor and producer. Here's Jesse. The story of Orson Welles begins in tragedy. Both of his parents are dead by the time he's 15 years old. He then passed up a scholarship at Harvard to travel Europe with a small portion of his inheritance. With a gift for parlor tricks and a strong desire to work in theater, young Orson Welles was alone in the world and on a mission. He ends up in Dublin, where he tells a local theater manager that he's a big Hollywood star, a lie that ultimately lands him a gig for over a year at the Gate Theater. You see, I'd I'd come to Ireland, not to act, but to be a painter. I'd always wanted to be a painter. In the spring of that year, I'd arrived, bought the donkey cart, traveled about Connemara, and found myself in Dublin in the autumn of that year without what are technically referred to as financial resources. I had a few shillings, but I blew those on a good dinner and a ticket to the theater. The theater was the gate. And on the stage, I recognized in a minor part a young fellow that I'd known in the west of Ireland for a while. He was a folklorist. I went backstage to say hello to him. And he introduced me to the directors, Edwards and McLeamore. And I heard myself introducing myself to them as a noted actor from the Broadway stage. Now, what had possessed me? I don't know why I told that whopper. The idea of earning my living as an actor was so preposterous that it seemed to me probably that the preposterous story was the only possible way of proposing it. Some reason they... They gave me the job, it was a very good part. I'd intimated that I was willing to stay on in Ireland for a short season if sufficiently interesting roles could be found. The first interesting role was the Archduke, and that's how I started, as I say, in the theatre. It was an easy start. I must confess to you that nothing's been easy since then. Wells returned to the United States and quickly found work on stage and in radio. He married his first wife, Virginia, when he was just 19 years of age in 1934. By 1935, Wells was supplementing his earnings in the theater as a radio actor in Manhattan, working with many actors who would later become the core of the Mercury Theater, which he opened in 1937 as the executive producer with a modern adaptation of Shakespeare's tragedy, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was done by the Mercury Theater without benefit of toga. 
was as timely last October as it was 1,650 years after Caesar's murder when Shakespeare wrote it. And it is as timely today. A glance at your newspaper headlines and you will understand why tonight we could wish for the extra dimension of television. Shakespeare's great political tragedy about the death of a dictator, which is also the personal tragedy of a great liberal, exists in all times without identification or special reference to its time. Wells worked extensively in radio as an actor, writer, director, and producer, often without credit. Between 1935 and 1937, he was earning as much as $2,000 a week. It was in 1938 when Norson Wells broadcast his famous War of the Worlds drama that allegedly sent listeners into a mass panic because they thought it was real news coverage of an actual alien invasion. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that joins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. The next half hour of the one-hour broadcast was presented as typical evening radio programming being interrupted by a series of news bulletins. Wait a minute, something's happening. Hump shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field caught up by the woods of fire. The, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. The illusion of realism was strengthened by the fact that the show didn't cut to any regularly scheduled commercial breaks for over a half hour. In the days after the broadcast, widespread outrage was reported in the media. The program's news bulletin format was described as deceptive by some newspapers and public figures leading to an outcry against the perpetrators of the broadcast and calls for regulation by the FCC. But the episode secured the fame of Orson Welles as a master of drama. This was his so-called apology to the press over the incident. I'm, of course, surprised that the H.G. Wells classic, which is the original for many fantasies about invasions by mythical monsters from planet Mars. I'm extremely surprised to learn that a story which has become familiar to children through the medium of comic strips and uh, many succeeding novels and adventure stories should have had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Orson Welles soon had the attention of Hollywood and received an offer from RKO Radio Pictures for him to write, produce, direct, and perform in two motion pictures with full creative control and the right to final cut. This was an unprecedented move for the industry, especially for someone who had no experience in film. I got that good a contract because I didn't really want to make a film. And you know, when you don't really want to go out to Hollywood, or at least this was true in the old days, or the golden days of Hollywood, when you honestly didn't want to go, then, then the deals got better and better. In my case, I didn't want money. I wanted authority. So I asked the impossible, hoping to be left alone. And at the end of a year's negotiations, I got it. While RKO rejected his first two movie proposals, they agreed on the third offer for Citizen Kane. Wells co-wrote, produced, and directed the film and performed the lead role. Now in complete control! 
campaign promises. Because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. <laughs> when we return, the story of Orson Welles continues on Our American Stories. Our American stories, and what an American story we're hearing. We last left off with the great Orson Welles taking Hollywood by storm at the age of 25, writing, producing, directing, and acting in Citizen Kane. There is only one man who can rid the politics of this state of the evil domination of boss Jim Geddes. I am speaking of Charles Foster Kane. The fighting liberal, the friend of the working man, the next governor of this state, who entered upon this campaign with one purpose only, to point out and make public the dishonesty, the downright villainy of boss Jim W. Geddes' political machine, now in complete control of the government of this state. I made no campaign promises. Because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. <laughs> now, however, I have something more than a hope. The initial working draft screenplay of Citizen Kane, dated April 16, 1940, was titled American. Orson Welles was just 25 years old when he directed, co-wrote, starred in, and produced the film, which was his very first feature. Movie buffs often consider it to be the best film ever made. Here is Martin Scorsese. When I really discovered what a director does, and that is, um, I saw Citizen Kane on television for the first time. And I began to become aware of editing and camera positions. Um, and what I guess happened there, of course, is that what he did, Wells, was literally, he was not afraid of being self-conscious with the camera and making self-reverential remarks with the camera and literally letting the audience understand that yes, the camera is looking through the floor up into the ceiling. You know, Wells did this and it had, he did it with such conviction and with such brilliance that you begin to realize, ah, I see the camera moves and I began noticing camera movement because he used that wide-angle lens a great deal. And if you use a wider-angle lens and you move quick enough, you see the walls speeding past you, you know. Um, and this is what I think Wells brought to uh, cinema, uh, to American cinema particularly because up to that time it was the seamless film in a way. Um, the hidden camera, the, the, uh, the camera that you couldn't tell was there. So Wells was the, the one to really break open, open up the Pandora's box of uh, cameras flying up in the eye. In a, in a funny way, I guess, uh, picking up where silent films left off, the odd thing about the picture, and I've seen it countless times, you know, the enigma of it is Kane itself, Kane, Kane himself. You don't know him. You can't get to know him. Uh, he's afraid of knowing himself. He's afraid of letting anything out that might, uh, that might be... Uh, uh, indicative of his feelings, his emotions. Uh, and it's not, he's not passive, though. 
He's, he's not passive, but he's got this this wall up that, uh, how many times I've seen the picture, I cannot get, um, I can't really feel for him as much as I did in the beginning. But in the beginning, when I first saw the film many times, I was, more, I was feeling more for Orson Welles himself acting in the film. I liked him personally. Multi-millionaire newspaper tycoon Charles Foster Kane, based on the real-life William Randolph Hearst, dies alone in his extravagant mansion, Xanadu, speaking a single word, Rosebud. In an attempt to figure out the meaning of this word, a reporter tracks down the people who worked and lived with Kane as they tell their stories in a series of flashbacks that reveal much about Kane's life, but not enough to unlock the riddle of his dying breath. Here is Steven Spielberg. It means everything to me. Citizen Kane is, is a, a is an, an, if not the icon, it is an icon of of courage. I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm, not, I'm talking about the courage of the filmmaker, the courage, the audacity. It's about courage and audacity. And I'm making this my way. And I'm going to deepen the focus. I don't care how many layers of makeup those actors sweat off. We're going to see from one inch to infinity in every shot. We're going to see ceilings. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna tell a very convoluted mystery story about a man's life. And, and I, it, it is just one of the great movies ever made and I think many people are going to agree it's just one of the great American experiences in, 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 the, in the cinema. While famous directors like Scorsese and Spielberg look back at Citizen Kane as a work of pure genius, Orson Welles was rather modest when it came time to describe his approach to cinematography. After all, he had no previous experience at the time. Ignorance, sheer ignorance, you know, there's no confidence to equal it. It's only when you know something about a profession, I think that you're timid or careful. I thought you could do anything with a camera that the eye could do or the imagination could do. And if you come up from the bottom in the film business, you're taught all the things that the cameraman doesn't want to attempt for fear he will be criticized for having failed. And in this case, I had a cameraman who didn't care if he was criticized if he failed, and I didn't know that there were things you couldn't do, so I, anything I could think up in my dreams, I attempted to photograph, simply by not knowing that they were impossible. And of course, again, I had a, a, a great advantage, not only in the real genius of my cameraman, but in the fact that he, like all great men, I think, who are masters of a craft, told me right at the outset that there was nothing about camera work that I couldn't learn in half a day, that any intelligent person couldn't learn in half a day and he was right citizen kane was given a limited release and the film received overwhelming critical praise it was voted best picture of 1941 by the national board of review and the new york film critics circle the film received nine academy award nominations but one only for best original screenplay how do you do ladies and gentlemen this is orson wells i'm speaking for the mercury theater and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. Despite his success, Orson Welles had very little interest in romanticizing the conception of art. And he never considered himself to be a true professional. I hate the romantic conception of art as taking precedence over anything. I think it's the last thing to be considered, always certainly would regard friendship as more important than my art. I have great respect for people who do regard their art in that way. 
and I think they are probably the most valuable artists. So I'm not defining what an artist ought to be. I'm just saying the kind of artist I am. I don't regard myself as fundamentally a professional, you know, anyway. I'm a, basically an adventurer. And those people who are serious and are professional, truly and deeply serious at the expense of every other value in life, are probably the people who make the biggest contribution to art. I certainly wouldn't like to be one of them. Orson Welles didn't see himself as much of a director. In fact, he didn't see anyone as much of a director. Not a real actor-director in movies, I'm convinced of it. I don't think that uh, uh, Olivier would be any better in Shakespeare in the movies with another director. I might, as a rival director, think somebody could make a better picture around him, as I do uh, uh, Chaplin, or as yep. he might think about my pictures. Yep. But not. I don't think there's anything to do with him as an actor that amounts to anything. There might be a take or two you'd improve, but not enough so it matters. I think the real, I, first of all, I think directing is the most overrated job in the world. It's the only one I really love in show business, but I think it is tremendously overrated. A, a, a director ought to be the assistant and the foundation of a performance, you know? And I think that is a very difficult job, a very worthy job, one that I'm proud to do and the only one in films that gives me any pleasure at all. I loathe acting in films. But I do think that there's a, it's been overblown because it's the only profession, movie directing, not stage directing, the only profession in the world where you can be incompetent and go on being successful for 30 years with nobody ever discovering it. The only job that a director can do in a film of real value is to do something more than what will happen automatically. If the story is put on, if the actors are good, they find themselves around the cutter, the cameraman, everything. If a director is something of a cameraman, something of a cutter, something of an actor, something of a writer, and preferably completely a cameraman, completely a writer, completely an actor, then he, his contribution is a real one. Otherwise, he's simply the man that says, action, cut, take it a little slower, take it a little faster, and nobody will ever discover that he doesn't know, know anything. Orson had a tendency to see everyone on the set as winging it, faking it until they made it, exactly like he did, from directors down to the actors. I think the greatest living actor of Shakespeare uh, is only guessing. It's a, maybe a divine guess, but it's still a guess. What's the tradition? Most tradition is just a succession of bad habits, you know. Is, 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 is less actors, lesser actors imitating the affectations of bigger actors. I don't believe in, in tradition. I just believe in practice, in the living practice of the thing. When we return, the life of Orson Welles continues right here on Our American Stories.
And we return to the story of Orson Welles, and you're hearing him in his own words. We love doing that here on the show. I love when he said, I didn't know there were things I couldn't do. My goodness, that's just terrific. And he was an adventurer, self-described, and hobbyist. And that's the Wright brothers, too. And so many of the entrepreneurs and innovators that we talk about and tell stories about here on this show. Now let's return to Wells on his thoughts on film production, the golden days of radio, and living a life of fame. I don't think anonymity is, uh, is an advantage to anybody who depends on the public. That's a kind of a... a Kind of obvious, if you depend on the public, the less anonymous you are, the better you're doing. Orson Welles would never reach the high watermark of Citizen Kane in Hollywood again. There was a lot of drama surrounding the lead character being loosely based on newspaper giant William Randolph Hearst. He tried to buy Citizen Kane from RKO and have the movie shelved. When that failed, he boycotted RKO from advertising the movie in any of his papers. As a result, theaters refused to run it and the film lost money, even though the critics loved it. This was the last time that RKO, or anyone else in the industry for that matter, would give full creative power and final say over editing to an actor ever again. I've uh, only controlled my destiny to the extent that I have seldom deliberately done something that I felt to be ignoble. That's about all I can say so that you go further and say, how much does destiny control me? A great deal. You know, I'm the victim of the most incredible series of misfortunes and the most incredible series of good luck strikes. You know, both. He would go on to make dozens of films, theater productions, and radio dramas over the years. From the 50s on, he'd end up spending most of his time in Europe, raising money for his own projects via film and TV work that was often beneath him, and always searching for backers. I don't think television is a superb medium of entertainment. I think it's a second-rate medium of entertainment. It's basically a second-hand medium of entertainment. I think it shows movies in a small, second-hand way. I think television drama is wonderful for the young fellows who want to break in and so on, but really isn't in the league of fine movies or theater or radio, which I think is superior. I think everything that is done in television as entertainment is less than the best the television is, which is basically, in my view, a medium of communication rather than of entertainment. You can expose a personality you can deal with a subject, it's a medium of journalism, medium of ideas, of information, even a narrative medium, wonderful storytelling medium, as opposed to a dramatic medium. So in, to that extent, entertainment is possible on it. Orson found plenty of work in TV, film, and radio to fund his own theater and film productions. His passion was in production, as a profession, a hobby, and an obsession. I was an actor manager for a long time, and I was an actor manager because there was such a thing as radio. And I made $1,500 a week as, a, as an anonymous radio actor in those good golden days when you could do that, and uh, about 1200 went into the theater. And there would have been no theater if I couldn't have put that money into it. I've just finished a picture now 
called Don Quixote Goes to the Moon, which was made without a script, entirely improvised, is an extremely experimental picture. I could no more have got, I don't know anybody crazy enough to have put up money for it. And uh, if there's anything valuable that I've done as a director in films in, in years, this is it. If it's a flop, it's an interesting one, but it never could have even begun if I'd uh, had to get somebody else to finance it. So I've had to use my career as an actor rather cynically. I've had to do a lot of, uh, of uh, take a lot of jobs and keep myself alive as a terrible word, movie star, something I never wanted to be, simply because it provided me with the dough to do a few pictures. Don Quixote ended up being one of Orson's uncompleted projects. Production began in 1957 and continued until the day he died in 1985. But Wells didn't care that it had taken him over 30 years to create a film that would never finish. It was his own personal project that he had financed himself. Some might consider that to be a colossal failure, but Orson Welles never directed a picture that made a profit in his entire life. He was in love with production. Here is the great Mel Brooks. It was kind of, a, in, a, in, a, in a wonderful way, I'm responsible for American filmmaking emerging as, as an important world product, not just a, a commercial venture, you know, but... Uh, we joined the world of cinema art because of people like Orson Welles. Twenty million years ago, an ape-like creature inhabited the earth. He was wonderful. It's a good story. I paid him $25,000. And he was supposed to do five days' work from nine to five, every day narrating, you know, see, worked on a very wonderful narration. I paid him for five days, like $5,000 a day, right? And the ape stood and became man. So he started at, like, uh, to test his voice out. <laughs> this is about 10 to 9 in the morning. By 11.30, 12 o'clock, he had done all the narration. It was all perfect. He said, any changes, I'll do anything you want, Mel. I just, I got so angry that I paid him so much and he did it in 10 minutes. Then I, so I asked him, I said, Orson, what are you, what are you, you know, what are you, what are you going to do with the 25 grand? What are you going to do with the money? And he said, Cuban cigars and Sivruga caviar. I, and he said, uh, I would have included women but I'm getting just a little too heavy. I said, well, how many, you know, you'll get a, you, you can get about 100 Cuban cigars. And he said, and a lot of Sevruga, because I could, I could have bought Beluga, but Sevruga is just as good and half the price. If he wasn't acting, he was directing. If he wasn't directing, he was writing. If he wasn't writing, he was on the radio. If he wasn't on the radio, he might be practicing a magic trick. One that he might have learned from none other than the great Harry Houdini himself. The whole world must miss Houdini, certainly the whole theater world, because he was, without any question, the greatest showman of our time. Nobody, as a matter of fact, who ever played the halls, either in England or America or anywhere, received his salary, and nobody, nobody deserved it because he could get out of anything. As you may remember, he was called an escapologist, an escape king. 
He was an expert in miracles. I'm proud to say he was my teacher in magic when I was young as a favor to my father. He did give me my first lessons in the art of conjuring. I remember once performing a miracle rather in the style of Houdini's, a humble little miracle, but it cost me $75 to do in honor of a young lady whom I was courting. And this was the miracle. I asked her, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Central Park, if she would take a card, any card. All ladies know how boring that is, but I didn't know that it was boring, and I asked her to take any card. And she took the card I wanted to, and I asked her, would she like the card in her purse or in my pocket, or would she like it written in the sky, written in the sky? She said, written in the sky, and I pointed Allah Houdini to the heavens, and she looked up, and there, sure enough, written in the heavens over New York was the Seven of Hearts. I hired a sign writer, a sky writer, one of those aeroplanes with the smoke, given him $75 to write the name of the card in the sky. But as I say, she said, well, you must have seen it up there before you did the trick. When we return, the life of Orson Welles continues here on Our American Stories. Return to the story of Orson Welles. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter, Our Five Best Stories of the Week. Again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And while Welles is best known for Citizen Kane, he also produced world-class radio programming outside of alien invasions. The Orson Welles Almanac, also known as Radio Almanac and the Orson Welles Comedy Show, was a 1944 radio series directed and hosted by Orson Welles. Good evening, this is Orson Welles just saying hello before the show starts. This is your radio almanac for March 8th. The moon entered Virgo this morning. The moon in Virgo is a nice, sociable sign, friendly and helpful, like the man who sells you your mobile gas. Prudence Pratt, I think we've got a minute for a household hint. The white of an egg and a few drops of lemon juice will enable you to whip coffee cream. Doesn't taste very good, though. Broadcast live on the Columbia Pacific Network, the 30-minute variety program was heard Wednesdays at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Good evening, good evening. Tonight we present, let's see, what do we present? Where's my secretary, Miss Grimmett? You needn't snap at me. You know I can always go back to driving rivets. Yes, but why should you strain yourself? <laughs> they have machines for that now. Let's forget the entire incident. I wish it had never happened. Who's our guest this evening? Lucille Ball. Oh, that's right. She'll be over later. She would have been here now, but she's working on an income tax blank. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the government wants Lucille Ball to fill out her form? <laughs> Many of the shows originated from U.S. military camps, where Wells and his guests entertained the troops. Ladies and gentlemen, your radio almanac brings you now a little music, but first, here's a last-minute bulletin from Dr. Snake Oil. If a fishbone becomes lodged in a person's throat, turn him upside down and slap him on the shoulder blades. Caution, 
In an upside-down position, a person's shoulder blades are not where you think they'd be. <laughs> These performances of the all-star jazz band that Wells brought together for the show were also an important force in the revival of traditional New Orleans jazz in the 1940s. This broadcast of the Orson Welles Almanac from 1944, Lucille Ball and Orson Welles break into a live, scripted sketch. Mickey, darling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mickey? I just want to glance over the headlines, dear. Have you seen this? No, what? Man found in alley, stabbed, shot, poisoned, robbed, and hung. <laughs> Police suspect foul play. Well, that's nice. This is your night off, dear. Stop playing detective. All right, all right. Go to bed, go to bed. Alone? My feet are cold. I know. <laughs> Mickey, where were you last night? Oh, Dora, don't be silly. You know how I feel about you. You're the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah, well, don't ever let me catch you with the other seven, bub. <laughs> oh, well, I guess we might as well turn in. Oh, Mickey, it's so nice to spend an evening like this. Lounge around in pajamas and then flop right into bed. It's so nice, dark and quiet. Mickey, scratch my back. Hmm. Mickey, is your circulation good? Your hand feels so cold. Mickey? Mickey? What do you want, dear? I'm in here brushing my teeth. <laughs> You say something, Dora? I scream. Well, please don't. The neighbors will think I'm beating you again. There's somebody in that bed and he's cold. Well, throw another blanket on him, dear. Orson also made a lot of money by endorsement deals and reading commercials like this one from Perrier. Deep below the plains of southern France, in a mysterious process begun millions of years ago, nature herself adds life to the icy waters of a single spring. Perrier. Its natural sparkle is more delicate than any made by man, and therefore more quenching, more refreshing. And the mixer par excellence, naturally sparkling from the center of the earth, Perrier. Orson could cut a commercial like that in one take and make several hundred to several thousand dollars for recording each one. But there was one time in particular that things weren't so easy even for an old radio pro like Orson Welles. A couple of voiceover directors decided to challenge him while recording an ad for Frozen Foods in 1970. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. Do you really mean that? Yeah, so in other words, I'd start half a second late. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. We aren't even in the fields, you see. Yeah, we aren't. We're talking about them growing, and she's picked them. Yeah. <coughs> what? In July. I don't understand you, then. When must, what must be over for July? Um, when we get out of that snowy field. When I was out, we were onto a can of peas, a big dish of peas, when I said in July. Oh, I'm sorry. Was yes, always. July, I'm always past that. You are? Yes. Now, just imagine trying to be the audio guy trying to direct a cranky Orson Welles for a commercial about frozen snow peas. Can you emphasize a bit in? 
In July. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Sorry. Um, There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence with in and emphasize it. That's just idiotic, if you'll forgive me by saying so. That's just stupid. In July. I'd love to know how you emphasize in and in July. Imagine being the great Orson Welles, taking direction from an audio tech, years after directing Citizen Kane. We know a little place in the American Far West where Charlie Briggs chops up the finest prairie-fed beef and tastes... This is a lot of shit. You know that. You want one more? Yes. More on what beef? You, you missed the first beef, actually, completely. What do you mean, missed it? You're emphasizing prairie fed. But you can't emphasize beef. That's like he's wanting me to emphasize in before July. Come on, fellas, you're losing your heads. I wouldn't direct any living actor like this in Shakespeare. Around the same time that Orson Welles went to Hollywood to write, produce, direct, and star in Citizen Kane at the age of 25, he was invited to a dinner party and asked to deliver a speech in front of the who's who. This is a story about a story within a story. I'd been introduced as a great after-dinner speaker. I don't know quite why, because I'm not. But I had been, and this was a great Hollywood dinner. Every star I'd ever seen in my life, I was tremendously impressed. There they all were, and a lot of other grand people besides Maharajas and all kinds of title folk, and I'd been called upon. Of course, being very frightened and very eager to please, I started a funny story which I'd heard that day and I'd gone on for a while when it dawned on me that I'd forgotten how it ended I, I, I continued with the story I hoped that somehow I'd find find an ending somehow be able to invent one and the people were all looking very eagerly waiting for the finish because they knew that although the story was very boring it must be boring for a purpose Obviously, it was boring because the end was going to be so tremendously amusing. They often looked at me eagerly, and I continued and continued. And I thought, how in heaven's name can I get out of this thing? I could pretend to faint or drop dead or rush out and yell fire. I continued to invent comical finishes that elicited no titters whatsoever quietly and secretly praying to myself to heaven. And then my prayer was granted. Ever since then, I've, I've been a great believer in, in the efficacy of prayer because just as I'd given up hope, just as I was wondering how I could get out of this situation, the walls started to shake, the chandelier fell down from the ceiling onto the table, the people jumped out of the table. This was California, remember. It was an earthquake. So I was... I was saved. My Hollywood career was saved by an earthquake. In the end, Orson Welles was just an incredible storyteller. Directing, acting, producing, all just tricks of the trade that he learned or taught himself along the way to get the job done the way he best saw fit. Orphaned at such a young age, he lied to get on stage, took Hollywood by storm, and created one of the greatest American films ever made, without having any experience in filmmaking whatsoever. He died on October 10th, 1985, from a heart attack at 70 years old, just three hours after recording an interview on the Merv Griffin Show. He was discovered by his driver the next morning, lying on a bed on the second floor of his home. A portable typewriter sat balanced and still on the dead man's stomach. 
He always liked to type lying down, said the driver. And that is the story of the great Orson Welles, at least part of it, for Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee.